Hi, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Smart Cities Chronicles, your podcast for everything Smart Cities action, investment, and outcomes. My name is Adam Beck. I'm host of the Chronicles and my day job, Executive Director of the Smart Cities Council for the Australia and New Zealand region. Um, episode 82 today, and uh, joining me for this episode to talk about everything smart infrastructure, uh, I've got Henry uh, O'Craglick from WSP Digital, who has a global role there. Henry, how are you? Welcome. Thanks, Adam. Glad to be here. Thanks. Uh, thanks for joining us, Henry. Um, let's start with some orientation. We've got listeners all over the world. Um, let's start with you. Can you share with us uh, who you are and what you do? Yeah, Henry O'Craglick. I'm the Global Director of WSP Digital, essentially the technology arm of WSP. And my role sort of falls into two domains. I run a P&L in this region, and that includes data and analytics, software engineering, geospatial, visualization, digital engineering, and DevOps. And my global role is much more around strategy and special projects. Uh, globally looking at how we improve our soft, uh, delivery of projects uh, globally for WSP. Um, I started WSP Digital for WSP about 11 years ago. And that's how long I've been with WSP. Henry, WSP would certainly be well known to most around the world. Uh, the the organisation's uh, involvement in leading infrastructure and design projects uh, in all different sectors um, WSP Digital and, and what you've just shared with us there, obviously um, potentially uh, quite new to some. What is sort of the bigger idea there in terms of sort of historically an infrastructure firm um, starting to now, well, not starting, over a decade now, you've been embedding uh, technology and data as a, as a core service. Can you share maybe a little bit about that journey and how that came about? Yeah, I think, I think WSP has long recognised that technology and digital will play an increasing role in infrastructure. Um, I actually started doing consulting work for WSP, uh, what was then Environment and Energy, uh, looking at software and what could be done to use software to improve the business um, and add value to our customers. And it's kind of grown from there. Um, I, I always feel like the world sort of caught up to where WSP has already been. Um, and looking at the New South Wales smart infrastructure policy is really in some ways a culmination and maturity of that. Yeah, and, and um, that's our topic for today. Uh, we've done a couple of these on the Chronicles podcast where we have a guest join us and we uh, we open up a, a recently released strategy or policy or plan. Um, and today we're going to dive uh, headfirst into the New South Wales government's smart infrastructure policy. I mean, I don't know about you, Henry, but when I saw that uh, released, um, the front cover alone was kind of like a, a, a beautiful sort of milestone in, in the the, the, the sort of the history of the built environment, a smart infrastructure policy coming from state government. What were, what were your initial reactions when you sort of saw it released? Um, I was a bit surprised actually, because normally when you look at policies, they tend to be extremely high level. This, one, this one's quite unusual. It is very specific about the technologies to be adopted and the process for adopting those technologies. So, you know, quite honestly, I was quite thrilled when I saw this. 
It's um, it's certainly uh, identified uh, up front and early in the document that um, uh, the the policy just jumps straight into what it's wanting to do, which is embed tech and data into into projects. Now, I mean, given um, given the New South Wales government's infrastructure pipeline in the order of I don't know what it is, three hundred plus billion. This is uh, this is no small opportunity. This is potentially a real sector-changing policy. Would you agree? Yeah. Well, it, it affects basically every infrastructure uh, initiative from the first of July two thousand and twenty. That's over ten million dollars in value, and it impacts every sector. So they list power, water, waste, ground and air quality, public spaces, building management, transport, agriculture. And it says any infrastructure that can obtain data to meet the local community smart place objective. So it is extremely far reaching. Yeah, I think also uh, for me, um, sometimes you can open a policy document and it's sort of, it's five to seven pages and plenty of motherhood statements. But as you say, this, uh, this certainly goes into quite some detail and really uh, as we go through it we'll find that um, it's essentially a set of minimum requirements um, which kind of really starts to sort of put some commitment behind the idea of smart infrastructure. Yeah and it, it actually gets extremely specific in terms of the technologies that are to be used and how you're to approach them so yeah it, it's quite unusual. So let's let's um uh, let's sort of go through this. So there's an upfront policy statement, talks about an overview. The policy is certainly um, heavily grounded in uh, a range of um, sort of linking plans and strategies. There's a there's a beyond digital uh, initiative by the government. There's, uh, of course, the Smart Places Strategy, which was the in some way the kind of companion document that was released at the same time that's sort of uh, quite um, quite overarching um, the state infrastructure strategy uh, which was released in 2018 that's a, a 20 year strategy that um, this uh, this policy also um, ha- has sort of a, a dotted line to um, in terms of um, in terms of the concept and the idea. Let, let's start up front and work our way through. But um, section one point four starts to talk about this concept of of smart infrastructure. Um, it defines smart infrastructure as infrastructure that uses technology and data to optimize performance, increase capacity, and achieve a greater return on investment. Um, okay, let's just hit pause for a moment. Henry, let's talk about this idea of smart infrastructure. I, I'd love to, I'd love to have you take us on a little bit of a um, a, a journey through your eyes over the last decade. I mean, you know, you you, you kind of been pioneering this smart infrastructure um, uh, work and 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 thinking. Um, what uh, what are your views on where the policy has landed in how it defines smart infrastructure uh, and where might that sit with what you think is the is is the is the broader government's industry's understanding and level of awareness I mean is this policy gonna hit the streets and kind of people don't even know what smart infrastructure is yet and we got to go on a, a journey to upskill people how mature are we with this idea of smart infrastructure well I, I don't I don't think we're very mature at all 
uh, sadly, because if you look at the way infrastructure is procured, it, it's typically done through joint ventures and alliance and with the primary contractor and with companies like WSP slotting into those alliances and joint ventures. And really there hasn't been anything specific until the release of this document that's required people that are working on infrastructure to think about it. So, you know, I can think of a couple of examples. We worked on the Melbourne Metro uh, project, putting in an IoT uh, system to be able to, to measure noise, vibration and air quality. But that was very much driven by environmental performance requirements mandated by the Victorian EPA. They weren't something that was required of the contractor per se. It was just a means of making the recording and management of that, those particular data streams more efficient and effective. It was really a solution. So this is the first time that we've seen something that's much more holistic in its scope. Yeah, I, I mean, that, that example you just give there around the use of tech and data to achieve those environmental parameters and, and environmental commitments, I mean, is kind of nice in terms of the idea that that sort of smart cities is about using tech and data to achieve a particular outcome but as you say um that was that was somewhat the solution was some somewhat driven by by your side it wasn't necessarily procured that way um uh, from a policy perspective uh, and policy making and its role in helping transform an industry or sort of you know lifting up better performance um, New South Wales obviously has, has come out, you know, with a big um, with a big statement here um, and a genuine one. It seems. Um, step back for a moment and and tell us, Henry, um, and let's just talk to, about Australia for the moment. Um, this is great that New South Wales has has sort of put this down, um, but the seven states and territories in Australia, uh, one one seventh. One seventh of a nation is embracing this. What what are your views on uh, smart uh, a smart infrastructure future for our nation? Uh, you got any comments on on that contextual issue? Oh, I think I think New South Wales government are, are well in front. I mean, in Victoria, which is a state I know quite well, that's where I live. Um, the Victorian um, Digital Assets Strategy VDAS um, goes some ways towards this sort of thing, but it talks more about digital twins and ISO 19650. Um, this is much, much broader and far reaching, I think. So I think you know, I think we can safely say New South Wales are really out, out in front here. It does, you know, creates obvious problems for companies like WSP and contractors nationally, if they're complying with one suite of uh, policies in one state and it's different in every other state. That's uh, the beauty of the Commonwealth, I suppose. <laughs> That's right. Um, so in the policy, Section 1.4, you know, we, we, we get through those definitions, you know, smart infrastructure, as we've we've just been speaking to. Um, it, it, it defines smart technology being sort of those devices that can be connected or interconnected, um, hardware and other physical assets that can be uh, embedded um, processes, sensors, data storage, software connectivity. Um, the the document then swiftly turns in section one point six Henry to security and privacy. Okay, really 
nice and early up front in the document, uh, clearly signaling that whilst we want sort of a smart infrastructure future and we want everything connected, um, that there is no uh, no um, no shortage of challenges in, t in terms of keeping uh, keeping data secure and, and devices secure, and of course respecting privacy. Um, no doubt you're not a stranger to security and privacy. Um, your thoughts on and views on um, the the policies sort of treatment of those two issues? Yeah, I think I think again, it's it's good to see this sort of labeled up front, but not only that, it actually goes through how you're to approach security, which is again, you know, I, go, I haven't seen this before. So security by design, network segmentation, and a standards approach. Um, now, I think what this is really doing is in a way it's obliquely referencing the forthcoming amendments to the Critical Infrastructure Act, which is a Commonwealth Act. That's going through amendments at the moment to beef up those security requirements very much along these lines. Uh, so I think, you know, when you look at that and privacy, obviously, we've seen a number of instances where of privacy breaches um, globally, and, and that's obviously of huge concern. So putting these up front is essential, but it means that you can't treat security and privacy as afterthoughts. You've got to build them into the process from the beginning. Yeah, I, I kind of noted that as well, um, and and I suspect, um, well, I don't suspect, I, I, I would I would. I sort of know that, um, particularly given the other work of the New South Wales government around cyber and other issues, that um, uh, we, we, we will certainly continually see all levels of government bring um, bring privacy and security front and centre. Um, okay, so we, we move through sort of those introductory components in section one. Section two, we start to head in into the requirements section. Um before we uh, before we get to that, there's an interesting um, there's an interesting line that I identified, Henry, in section two point one around needs assessment. It, it it says all infrastructure projects uh, must complete an options analysis, which must detail how the agency, so how the you know the government agency or entity or department will incorporate smart technology. Now. Um, uh, the, uh, there's nothing wrong with that sentence per se in my mind. However, when I start to think about, well, hang on, an options assessment uh, on on what you could incorporate in terms of smart technology, that's an interesting exercise, analysing the potential sort of solutions that you can embed in your project. And remember, of course, this is for all new and existing upgraded renovated projects over 10 million and we're talking everything from from buildings so vertical infrastructure but also horizontal infrastructure so tunnels are sometimes very different to libraries which are very different to hospitals which are you know different to sort of bridges or or uh, you know desalination plants infrastructure is a very broad term um, and of course the technology suite and the data solutions that are available to us are equally diverse um, I, I I question how this might happen. Maybe there's an accompanying guide later on that'll sort of define what an options analysis is for smart infrastructure. But what's your view on on, on this particular um, needs assessment issue? Yeah, like you, when I read this, I thought, 
what on earth is an options analysis and how is this actually going to happen? But I think, I think what you can infer from this is they're largely leaving it to the agencies to determine how they're going to do the options analysis. And probably that reflects something you said is the, the variability between different types of infrastructure buildings versus railway lines, et cetera. And perhaps it's giving them a little bit of latitude. It does go on though and give a few clues about what you should include in that analysis. So a little bit further down in 2.1, it says analysis of existing and future infrastructure management, current and future needs of customers, location of the infrastructure data that might be useful, analysis of requirements of the infrastructure, an understanding of how smart technology can optimize the use management and ownership of the infrastructure and a national security assessment. And so it does give some clues at least about the broad topics to be addressed within that options analysis. But yes, I, I like you, I'm gonna be very curious to see how different agencies wrap their minds around that because presumably that will then come forward in it, all of the procurement of all of this infrastructure and it'll be something people like WSP and contractors need to comply with. So this is really where the rubber hits the road to me. Um, can I ask you uh, a, a sort of a side question around this? I spent a fair portion of my private sector career um, neck deep in uh, undertaking uh, environmental impact assessments and statements associated with big infrastructure projects. Um, you know, the, the EIS is often a very early um, uh, sort of communication piece around an infrastructure project it sort of sets the goal and the vision you know we've looked at options a b and c uh, and under relevant legislation we've considered the potential environmental impacts and, and how we sort of mitigate those so so we all know what a typical eis is but it really hasn't changed in the last sort of 20 to 30 years it's 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 law um it's what it is um how how far along on the spectrum from sort of conceptual, you know, imagine a plan out on the table, you know, butters paper lines through the landscape of where a new roadway or, or, or tollway might go versus sort of, you know, procurement end of pipe mobilizing on site. How far up towards the EIS could you potentially see smart infrastructure you know, playing a, a key role. Last time I looked, even as early as uh, two months ago with, I think, Sydney Metro West, I can't remember. I was just geeking out, searching through the EIS document. I, I'm not seeing a, a, a lot of references to smart infrastructure or smart cities or technology and data. What's What's going on here? Are we going to be able to change that? Because I would have thought sooner rather than later with respect to embedding smart infrastructure would be the ideal sort of scenario here. Would you agree or not? I would agree. I'm not sure that this policy really covers that preliminary step of that EIS before you get into procurement of infrastructure works. But logically, you think it should, shouldn't it? You know, when you think about it, you would like to have all everything that's required in terms of a smart infrastructure from the beginning right through to the end. And by the end, I mean when it's operational and more in operational maintenance mode, 
that all of that technology starts at the EIS and goes all the way through. Although there's no particular reference in this document to that part of it. This addresses more, as I read it anyway, from the construction forward. Yeah. I suppose, yeah, I suppose as a, as sort of a, a an old EIS practitioner, uh, it certainly is um, the, the world of a certain group of professionals that, that um, really manage that part of the life cycle of the asset, that early planning. Uh, and of course, often, as you say, a contractor is not even at the table then. So finding that, uh, that nice sweet spot somewhere in the middle um, could be uh, something we strive for. But anyway, we, um, uh, we, we sort of digress. But moving on, uh, Henry, uh, back in Section 2, the requirements for smart infrastructure, um, uh, Section 2.2 starts to really get a little bit nerdy. Okay, so Section 2.2, reference model for smart infrastructure requirements. And, you know, before you've taken a breath, uh, you're into a whole range of layers uh, for what they're calling a smart connected system. So security, application and hosting layer, data and intelligence layer, connectivity layer, uh, sensor layer. Um, I mean, wow, we, we've, we've, we've gone straight into the detail quite early, haven't we? Yeah, I've got to say I love this bit. But I, I, when I was uh, going through this with some of my colleagues who perhaps aren't as geeky as I am, I kind of jokingly said to them, I think I need to write a primer and explain these terms. <laughs> in sort of layman's, layman's terms so that we can really understand. So this, this goes down into levels that are really very geeky indeed. MQTT, COAP, RFID, LoRaWAN. I mean, let's, let's get real here. I mean, most normal people who are outside of the technology field would have no idea what that means, yet alone how to include it in their options analysis or what it means in terms of implementation. So, you know, I do think this probably does need a primer to go along with it. Yeah, you, you know, I, I jumped straight to that definitional sort of issue as well. I thought to myself, you know, when I was, when I was sort of back, you know, around the table with, you know, traffic and transport engineers, tunnel, uh, tunnel geotech folks, you know, transportation management people, you know, all part of a, a, a design of a... Uh, of an infrastructure project, we weren't, we certainly weren't using terminology like this back in the day. But of course, um, things have changed. Uh, and um, if anything, I suppose um, this potentially gives us the license as broader industry and and the supply side um, to step up and you know s support this policy by creating our you know own relevant sort of supporting documents, additional thought leadership, dare I say, sort of training and awareness raising and things like that. It's, it's a good opportunity, maybe. I think, I think, I think it's a great opportunity, certainly from where I sit. You know, it, it demands that you've got to have expertise in these areas. You need software engineering expertise in order to address these issues. So, so from WSP's point of view, we think this is terrific. Of course, but yeah, I, I think it's you're right. It's going to be an enormous step up for a lot of our colleagues in the industry to wrap their minds around this. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. You're in the box seat here. Um, what's interesting, uh, as as the document, um, as we continue to move through the document, now now really getting into the core components of it, where um, that the these minimum requirements are specified. We have a pretty much just a a, a two column table. 
which which goes through each of these particular layers um you know security uh then we talk about you know connectivity and application and hosting uh, the data layer it just lays out essentially a bunch of requirements and um two two levels of requirements and the policy is very clear there are requirements that you must embrace these are mandatory uh and then there are requirements in there where they where they specify that um you should do them and they're very clear that should equals recommended um not necessarily mandatory so the policy is quite nice and and very clear around what must happen and then of course what they recommend um like I don't know really what else to sort of say here. It's it's one big table, goes through each of those layers um, and, and spells it out sort of layer by layer. These are the technology and data requirements um, that, uh, that you need to sort of embrace. I mean, yeah. it's kind of just there in black and white. It is. I think, I think there, is, there is a couple of them that are worth sort of pausing on, perhaps. So I think the very first one where it says open technology or vendor agnostic platforms where available. Now, this sounds pretty sensible, right? But does that mean that it locks out proprietary solutions? Which mm. have for a long time dominated purchasing within many government departments. Mm. This would seem to imply that it does. Because it then goes on to say, why is it important? improve an agency's ability to change the vendors it is paid to build and support the solutions. I mean, this all sounds eminently reasonable, but certainly has not been the practice in a lot of procurement of software. So, you know, I think, you know, most of us reading that would go, yeah, of course, that sounds very sensible, but that has not been the way things have happened, mostly. No, and of course, what you're really saying there is that a lot of business models in, on the private sector supply side, you know, are built around that idea of, uh, of, of you know, proprietary solutions. Um, but that world is changing and the New South Wales government is is kind of specifying that now, aren't they? Open and recognised standards. Oh, I think it's terrific. If, if, you know, I mean, it's just basic common sense, but it certainly isn't the way the industry is operating. So it's, um, you know, very pleasing to see that, I think. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the security layer, again, I think it speaks to um, and aligns with um, a lot of the uh, existing uh, supporting uh, policy and infrastructure, uh, soft infrastructure in place, like the, the New South Wales cybersecurity policy. Um, to their credit as well, the, the New South Wales government released last year an Internet of Things policy. So, so some good supporting uh, documentation there. Is, um, is, is the infrastructure sector one that you think uh, may struggle with sort of privacy and security, Henry? I, I'm not sort of pre preempting an, you know, a particular uh, answer, yes or no to that, but I just I just reflect and I and I wonder, given given the um, the, the the rapidly evolving world of Internet of Things, for example, you know the number of devices that you can connect to the internet now that can sense things and gather data. You know, there's three thousand new sensors every day that reach the market. You know, this is a really rapidly evolving space, and what we do often 
see with big infrastructure projects is they is they can be big and cumbersome and very risk averse um, and you know subject to, to to change notices at any time I, I'm just trying to I'm trying to imagine the fit of a of a rapidly evolving um, at times minimal certainty high risk sector like smart and technology fitting with um, infrastructure we, we know it well bill of materials 40 of those 60 of them these are the quantities uh, sort of managing risk um, I don't know I'm just trying to work out how these how these two sort of uh, industries and sectors mesh together yeah I think I think there's probably two aspects to that one one is that line security by design so that when you're designing the smart to go into your infrastructure you think about the security to begin with but I, I tell you, security is a very complex beast, especially when you start talking about, you know, different bits of hardware collecting information. It's transmitting that through 4G or 5G or Wi-Fi or LoRaWAN, and then it's going up into the cloud somewhere, and then it's going from the cloud to somebody else. There are many pieces in, in the chain here, many links in the chain where things could go wrong. I wouldn't be surprised if we start seeing security officers as part of infrastructure mm. because it's just it's too complicated at least and too important to be left to people that don't play in this game or for a living. Yeah, yeah. We'll see security officers being deployed onto infrastructure projects. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. Um, the the data and intelligence layer is an interesting one that caught my eye. Um, I, I naturally sort of sort of go there. The policy comes out sort of um, pretty uh, pretty straight up and down with respect to uh, data governance. You know, the, the relevant agencies must have a, a a documented approach to data governance and management. So what we have here, Henry, of course, is potentially multiple clients on the New South Wales government side, you know, health, transportation, social services. I, I don't know all the departments, but you can see very various different departments, of course, all having capital works and, and asset, you know, management programs. Um, all those agencies needing to sort of embed this into their, you know, tenders and specifications. They themselves, the agencies, must, uh, must have a data governance and management uh, sort of approach. So let's just pause here for a moment. Let's forget about the consultants and the WSPs and the lend leases and the other contractors. Let's talk about the client and their ability, um, their level of awareness, their capacity to be a good client with respect to smart infrastructure. You got any views on that one? Yeah, and, and again, there's a there's a lot in here about data sets must be open, available for reuse, and licensing that allows others to reuse the data in original ways. I mean, you know, that sort of implies that no matter what infrastructure you're building, no matter what agency, that you're producing that data in a way that it can be made open and consumable by presumably other agencies, or in some cases on an open data platform consumed by the public at will. So again, quite, quite a radical sort of thing. You're going to now have, need a data expert to work out what's going to be your data format and how are you going to manage that data to comply with this 2, 3.4 data and intelligence layer. 
again, you can see the need, you're gonna need experts to do this. This is not something you're gonna pick up by watching a YouTube video. I, um, I certainly take an element of that as being a challenge that'll have to be navigated, but I think overwhelmingly more my excitement overshadows that. I mean, this is, um, this is, I mean, can I use the word transformational? Am I being dramatic? No, I don't think so. This, this is good stuff. I mean, this is, this is what we want. This is what, you, what we need. We need to have data that is open and accessible so we can get new insights so that we can find out things that we otherwise would never know. And if it's open, then the possibilities are ex open up exponentially. This is, this is great. I remember um, uh, when I was uh, back in the, the green building world, you know, that, that was a, I mean, it's still an ongoing agenda, of course, and it, it goes from strength to strength. But, you know, th there was like this, I feel that there was that first 20 years where kind of there was a lot of heavy lifting to be done, you know, um, certainly coming out with uh, clear requirements for what we want, uh, such as this policy is, is good. Um, but we can't underestimate, um, you know, the, the, the capacity building that we're going to have to do here, you know, the, the, the supply chain, the ecosystem. Um, I mean, you can, we could jump on Amazon right now, Henry, and we could buy a bunch of sensors and they'll be shipped overnight and we can connect them to the internet. There's, there's, there's private networks, there's secure networks. Um, this is, uh, th this is a, a sector transformation uh, exercise if I've overseen one. Yeah, I, I agree with you. And it's going to require a whole lot of new skills and expertise to be brought to the table to do this, both on the agency side, but also on the, on the contractor and the supplier side. You know, I think this really is transformational. Henry, I get, uh, I get to the end of sort of section two, which is, you know, section two being the core of the document, you know, that each of the requirements specified you know, under each of those layers. Um, the document then just, um, it kind of ends and, and we're suddenly at the appendix and there's a couple of uh, nice little case studies there, Sydney Northwest Metro and uh, the John Hunter Hospital Smart Infrastructure Project, some little case studies they put there. Um, I did wonder whether there was a section missing maybe. Is there a what are the next three steps you should take or um, where to go for further information or, you know, how might you start to apply this document? Did you, what, what was your views about kind of the, the tail end of the, of the policy? Yeah, you're right. It does end, end rather dramatically, doesn't it? It sort of finishes yeah. on these very technical notes about, you know, what you need to do with the sensor layer. So, and then it just sort of stops. And then as you say, goes into another of these case studies. Um, I, I do think that there's an overlying philosophy here that says, well, when the agencies get this, it'll be up to them to work out the mechanics of how they do that. And there's, there's possibly a gap there. Now, I'm guessing that Infrastructure New South Wales view was, well, the agencies will have to work that out because it's very specific to the type of infrastructure that you're, you're concerned about. And so I do get that, but I think, probably some more guidelines are required here to help them along the way. So I think it's going to be a big ask. I mean, give it a couple of years, of course, this will become the norm and it'll become systematized and it'll become enshrined 
in the way things happen. But I think um, it'd be interesting to see what is the first infrastructure project that actually adopts this and how they how they manage it. Yeah, I uh, I, I agree. Um, and let, let's not take away from the fact that um, you know they're the only ones nationally that have a policy like this. They're showing national, if not regional and international leadership. So um, uh, kudos certainly to Minister Dominello uh, and the uh, and, and the relevant departments involved. Um, so let's just sort of close the close the cover on the policy, Henry. Uh, let's step back. Uh, sort of some final comments around the policy, um, the, 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 the infrastructure landscape at the moment, um, the, the, the timing of this policy, given where we're at with the economy, you know, um, it's challenging times, but then equally some say that uh, Australia's response to the COVID pandemic is, is somewhat a bit of an infrastructure-led uh, recovery as well. So what are your sort of broader reflections around, you know, the infrastructure sector, the landscape, the, 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 the economic conditions and, and where this policy sits? Yeah, I think you're right. We're, you know, we seem to be entering an infrastructure led recovery from COVID-19. Um, and this policy comes at a very, very interesting time because it's basically going to apply to any, all of the infrastructure builds within New South Wales, which are going to be massive. Um, I, I suppose some people might argue, well, this is the last thing we need. It just it feels like more red tape to go through to get to get jobs on the ground and shovel ready to use that expression. Um, but I kind of think it will also, if you look at it more positively, this will accelerate the uptake of smarts into infrastructure because we, there is now no, no longer a choice. You'll have to do it. And I think this is actually the role of government is to push these things along. And this having access to this data is going to have long-term benefits well beyond just the construction phase. So I think the government's rightfully taken a much longer-term view of the benefits of this sort of policy. I think it's admirable. I think you're right. This is showing true leadership, and um, I think we should all welcome it. You know, um, and I agree. I mean, when I look back again, if I take the green building movement and transformation as a bit of an example, um, we saw the early leadership come from the private sector, right? It was it was it was led by you know the, the likes of the WSPs and, and the engineers and the contractors uh, and and developers with respect to you know gr you know pushing greener buildings forward. Um, I haven't seen, I'm, I'm trying to think, I, don't sort of hold me on this later on, but I, I don't know if I've necessarily seen uh, in the built environment uh, government-led leadership like this in terms of really trying to, um, you know, catalyze. I mean, this is, this is a... This is an economic development opportunity here, right? You know, the, the 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 pipeline of the spend, the minimum requirements. If I was in tech and data, I'd be rubbing my hands together. And I am. <laughs> I'm very happy with this, you know, at, at a very personal level. Um, but I think it does have genuine community benefits and hopefully this will pave the way for a similar thing to happen um, with every state. Yeah, and, and look, I think if we... Um, uh, if we look at some of those other uh, leading nations, um, the, the United Kingdom, Singapore, um, certainly um, embedding technology and data, um, uh, you know, quite some time ago in terms of 
generating greater value from their infrastructure assets is is sort of um, uh, is, is sort of the, the aspiration that maybe Australia has been um, you know aspiring to achieve for quite some time. So this is certainly um, certainly a good start. Um, I'd love for this kind of policy to be elevated to a national level, um, but you know time will uh, will certainly tell on that front. Um, well, Henry, look. Our, our time is is almost uh, at, at a close. Probably more, you know, a bit of a personal reflection. Um, I'd, I'd love to know kind of what you're looking forward to over the next twelve months. Um, you know, you've been uh, you've been uh, you've been in lockdown for a while now. Our, our poor fellow Victorians. Um, what, uh, what what's what's keeping uh, what's keeping you optimistic around the next twelve months? Um, you're right, we've been in lockdown for quite a while down here in Melbourne, so I obviously at a personal level very much looking forward to the easing of restrictions and freedom of movement again and seeing my team and my colleagues again and friends and family um, like everyone in Melbourne. But, you know, I, I'm also, you know, quite optimistic. We're seeing quite a good flow of opportunities at the moment, um, certainly in the technology side of our business there doesn't seem to be any letting up. So, you know, I feel really good about the tail end of this year and, and the beginning of 2021. I think it's going to be terrific. And I think, you know, there will be a sense of optimism as we come out of COVID-19 and the government seems to be doing the right thing, spending money on infrastructure, which creates employment and opportunities. And I think this smart infrastructure policy is going to create new jobs that we've never seen before. And that's going to be great. Well, Henry, I think uh, I think we're certainly on the same page there, uh, particularly in terms of um, uh, this policy and infrastructure and um, the next little while. Uh, so um, I wanted to thank you so much for joining us uh, on the Chronicles today and sharing your views around uh, this really not only interesting, but I think really important piece of uh, policy that's come out of New South Wales. Thank, thanks so much for joining us. Uh, absolutely my pleasure and thank you for having me and i've thoroughly enjoyed the conversation thank you no problems at all uh and for our listeners uh our guest today has been henry uh craglick from uh, wsp henry is um global director of wsp uh, digital uh and has been sharing his views with me on the new south wales government's smart infrastructure policy uh which you can find online there's not too many other references uh when you plug in smart infrastructure policy australia so it won't take you long to get there when you plug it into a browser uh and for our listeners who aren't subscribing uh to the chronicles you can do so on all your uh relevant favorite uh podcast platforms you can also head to our website to see all of our previous episodes uh, and keep an eye on them, uh, smartcitieschronicles.com. And you can always drop us a note, send us an email. Our address is chronicles at anz.smartcitiescouncil.com. My name is Adam Beck, your host of the Chronicles. We look forward to bringing you another episode very soon. Stay healthy, stay safe. Look forward to speaking to you soon. Thank you.